Good morning. So you have to figure out the chaff that I've slipped in there. Um, so it means you have to think about what I'm going to tell you because there might be, I'm not doing it on purpose, but there, there probably is something that, that, that God doesn't, at the very least, maybe doesn't have for you, but it's a great conversation to be having because you need to think. You need to use your minds and your hearts and think about what God might be saying to you and what He might be speaking to you. And, and particularly these few weeks, think about what you believe. What do you believe as a Christian? As someone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, what do you believe? We have, um, and what we're talking about is the Nicene Creed. This is a statement of the church that outlines what we believe as Christians. And so we say it regularly in this service. We say it every week in the, um, in the church building. We say the Nicene Creed. And, and all of you, many of you in here have said it before, and many of you likely don't know what you're talking about. Just like me. I've been there, and I still am. And I say some of these words, and you know, they're of the same substance, and I'm like, what, is, what, is, what does that mean? Um, and we probably won't tell you exactly what that means today, but we're going to give you an outline of, of what that means. And so we've got this creed, and it was developed in the 4th century by the church as a statement about what Christians believe. And the reason this was necessary is because the faith was on attack from all sides and from within about what it meant to be a Christian. And there were all sorts of, of heresies and beliefs going around that simply were not true. And so the church had to come together. These, these bishops of the church came together and they started, they had a, a healthy debate. What do we believe? What does it mean? Is Jesus God and man? Is he just God and kind of man? Or is he just man and kind of God? And, and they, were, they were trying to figure all this stuff out and, and they realized the implications of what they were saying. And so they put it together in the creed, the Nicene Creed as we call it. And so last week we looked at um, the first part of this creed where we said that we believed in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Creator in heaven and earth. And so we said there is only one God. Somehow he, he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is only one God. There are no other gods, no matter how many we try to elevate and put in position of God. There's only one. And that's, that's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this one God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of everything we see, visible, everything that is invisible. He's the creator of you and me in the unique and amazing image of God. And yet somehow we have rejected this creator. We have said, no, we don't, we don't want you to be our God. We reject you. We don't want to walk in the cool of the garden with you. We want to do our own thing and do our own, go our own way and, and make our own gods instead of you. And so we come then to the second very important part of this creed today. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. So we say we believe in God the Father. We know we're sinful. We know we are created in His image. We know He has a plan to restore us. And how's He going to do it? We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to think through three things about Jesus. And they're all very important. Okay? The first thing we're going to think about is Jesus is God. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. So Jesus, the man, is also God. Jesus is God. Second thing we're going to see is Jesus is not only God, but he is God for us. 
He's God for us. He's not God against us. He's God for us. And the final thing we're going to see, not only is Jesus God, not only is Jesus for us, but Jesus is God for our salvation. He's God, he's God for us, and he's God for our salvation. So let's, let's dive right in, and we're going to start um, in Psalm 110, the psalm we read um, this morning, the psalm that maybe was a little troubling, but, but certainly worth reading. Um, there are plenty of scriptures that point to this idea that Jesus is God. Uh, this is one in particular that the New Testament authors rightly latched onto to, to see how Jesus is God. And, and what we call this psalm, this is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that points to the Messiah. It points ahead to the Messiah. So even before Jesus was born, the Jews around the, um, the, the around right in, his, right in his lifetime, right before he was born, they would read this psalm. And they would say, this is pointing to something more. This is pointing to a Messiah, someone who's going to come and save us and redeem us and and deliver us from the hand of this evil Roman government. This is talking about the Messiah. And the Christians saw it and they said, yeah, that, that is talking about the Messiah. And so hear that first verse even. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So whoever this Messiah is will sit at the right hand of God, the hand that, is, that holds the power and the authority, the Messiah will sit right there, and his enemies, the, the evils of this world, oppressors, the enemies of the Jewish people, the enemies of Christians, will be made footstools at the feet of the Messiah. So they read the psalm and they see that about the Messiah. But they also know one more thing about the Messiah. The Messiah is the son of David. And we talked about that a little bit this summer. That, that God promised David that his son or one of his sons or descendants would reign on the throne of Israel, would reign on the throne of God forever. So we have the Messiah here in this psalm. And we also know this same Messiah is going to be the son of David. And that's where we have a problem, you see. Or maybe it's not a problem. Because here, David is writing the psalm. David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So this my Lord is the Messiah. And David is calling the Messiah Lord, but the Lord is also David's son. And you cannot be somebody's son and also be their Lord. Does that make sense? you got to think about it. Okay, my son, I love him dearly. He is not my Lord. David's son, whether it's grandson or great-grandson or 12 great-grandson, his son cannot be his Lord in an earthly construction. It just can't happen. But here we have David. He's saying it right here. The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah is David's Lord. It must be something more than a simple man. Because this man is also the Lord of his father, David. And as we read on, we find that this Lord was begotten of God from before creation. And so this Lord, this Messiah, is somehow also God and is Jesus Christ. And so there is certainly something more than just a man in Jesus. And when we look at his life, when we see the healings that he did, the miracles that he worked, the very fact that he could stand there and say, your sins are forgiven... This man is claiming to be God. 
His cousin John said that, said that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. You read through the Old Testament, the only person who sends the Holy Spirit is God. And then you have these 12 Jewish men who believe, just as you and I do, as in one God, one God only. These 12 Jewish disciples of Jesus are worshiping him after he dies and is resurrected from the dead. Jesus is God. Point two, he is God for us. And this is, um, this is very important that he is God for us. Because you read through this psalm and there are some, um, you know, there's some scary, there's some scary words in it. We read that the Messiah will um, rule, that he will shatter, that there will be judgment, that there will be wrath. There's a phrase in this psalm about corpses being piled up. These are all very disturbing. And if we think this is what the Messiah is bringing, we should be terrified. We should be terrified if God, Jesus, is a Messiah who is only bringing these things. You should run away as fast as you can, except except for the fact that He isn't simply God, but He is God for us. Jesus is God, and Jesus is God for us. Let's consider, think about the creed. Maybe we can pull that back up on the screen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Those are all fancy ways of saying Jesus is God. Through Him all things were made. For us. For us. And for our salvation, God for us, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, was made man for our sake, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. This is a description of God for us. And so when we come before the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the God who is for us, we don't have to be afraid, friends. We don't have to be afraid. Sure, there's going to be judgment. Sure, there's going to be wrath. But this is God for us. This is the God who came down and walked on the earth for us. Let's read the gospel this morning. John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Where I am, you may be also. Does that sound like a God who is against us? That's a God who is for us, who wants to be with us. Or if we, if we continued on to verse 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You know him And you have seen him. This is a God who is for us, who wants to know us, who wants us to see us, see him, who wants to be in relationship with us. He is for us. Jesus is God 
And Jesus is God for us. Now we're going to pause for just a second and think about this. There are two equally, um, equally, not troubling, but equally wrong, different ways we go about this. Because some of us, um, and, and we, we tend to stress the, the God part, that Jesus is God. And some of us tend to stress that Jesus is for us part. So we're going to start there. Some of us lean in that direction. Yes, God, God is for us. Jesus is for us. Jesus, yeah, he's my homeboy. Have you seen those shirts? They're shirts. They say, Jesus is my homeboy. Um, this might sound like Jesus, yeah, you know, he's my best friend, and we talk, and I pray to him, and sometimes I hit him up for money, and we're really close. Um, now, these things aren't bad, okay? They're not bad. Jesus shouldn't be your friend. You should talk to him. These are all very good, healthy things in any, any relationship. But if that's all it is, if that's all it is, then all of a sudden Jesus is okay with, with what we do. Jesus, when he never judged me. You know, it says in the Bible we shouldn't judge others. Jesus, he's my buddy. He's not going to judge me. And so we come to dismiss this part of God. We don't want this part of God, this, this, this part where Jesus is God. We want the Jesus who is for us. And so I want to tell you that he is for you, but he's, he is God, and you've got to sit under that. You've got to accept that. Every single person in this room will sit before Jesus, God, and will be judged. You can't get out of that. And you should crave that. You should want that. Because there are things in your life that need to be judged, that need to be destroyed, and you know it. And you want to sit there before this God who is for us, but who is also God, and let him judge those things and know in your heart of hearts that that judgment is cleansing you. Because he is God, he's also God for us. Of course, the other, um, the other way we often stray, we, we, we sometimes we stray in the side of, of Jesus being for us, and we forget the part that he's God. And sometimes we stray in the side that he's God and we forget the part that he's for us. And the way this looks is a, a Christian life that's all about rules and how you live your life and how you behave and the image you present to this world because Jesus is God and you better do what he says. You forget the for us part and you, you dwell and we live under, under this God part. And so we try to be holy and we try to live our lives, lives very holy and very perfect. And we, we pray that famous Pharisee prayer, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. And we get in our holy huddle. And we don't associate with, you know, sinners. Because they might taint us, they might somehow make us less holy, less, less acceptable in the eyes of Jesus. Is that not what we do sometimes? That's a, a broad brush characterization. But you, you, I've been there. I've done that. It's, it's easier sometimes to just hang out with folks who believe in Jesus. It's, it's so much easier. But what if Jesus did that? What if Jesus said, well, I'm just going to hang out with Christians? He'd have two friends. The Father and the Holy Spirit. But he didn't. He came down. He walked on this earth while we were still sinners. 
Because he's God, but he's also God for us. Finally, he's God for our salvation. Jesus is God for us and for our salvation. Because he is God and because he is for us, he has to be for our salvation. He loves us so much that he is offering us salvation. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go all the way down to verse 25 um, and verse 26. We are justified, or 24, excuse me. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, that's a large word. The NIV translates it um, as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement's another big word, too. What, what does this mean? Well, when we talk about propitiation, we're talking about the satisfaction of wrath. The satisfaction of wrath. And the idea here is, is God who is um, fed up with sin, who cannot be in the presence of sin, who has promised judgment and punishment on sin. This God is, is, is wrathful, and that's a scary word, but I'm telling you, you want a wrathful God? You don't want a God who accepts sin. You want a God who judges it. And if Jesus is the propitiation, if Jesus satisfies that wrath, then Jesus has taken the wrath of God on his shoulders. That wrath of God that was directed towards you, towards me, was taken on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Um, my favorite theologian, Karl Barth, he puts it this way. He describes Jesus as the judge, the judge, judged in our place. The judge judged in our place. And what this means is Jesus has, he is, and he will judge this world. He will make a judgment on it. The fact that we are all sinners, the fact that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, the fact that the wages of this sin is death, Jesus makes that judgment, stands up, turns around, and then he accepts that judgment. He makes the judgment, and then he accepts the judgment on our behalf. You see that? The judge, the perfect God for us judge, judged in our place. Because he is for us and for our salvation. So, in all of that, we see a very future-oriented faith. You believe in Jesus, who is God, God for us, God for our salvation. And you look down the road, rightfully so, and you say, One day, I'm going to be out of this mess of my life. I'm going to be out of this crazy world. I'm going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. And praise God, we will be with Him, with all the saints in heaven. Hang on to that. Don't lose that. But don't just wait for it either. So often we get this long-term view and we say, if I can just make it through this life, I'll finally enjoy the glory of Jesus. And I'm saying no. Claim it right now. That is not just a future salvation. It is a right now salvation. 
You're not always going to see it. You're not always going to realize it. But the more you reflect on it and think about it and live into this reality that Jesus died for your sins, it is amazing what that does for our lives right now because we spend so much time striving and straining and reaching and, and just trying to justify our existence sometimes. When the fact is we're justified by the very fact that Jesus is God for us. Think about this quote from Madonna, of all people. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. I'm driven by this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I have to prove that I'm somebody. This is Madonna. Even though I've become somebody, I feel like I have to prove to this world that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I have to prove to this world, to myself, that I am somebody. Y'all feeling that? Does that got you? Do you feel like that's you? Do you feel like you're having to prove it, whether it's, whether it's to yourself or to your spouse or to your coworkers or to God? Do you feel like you have to prove it? You don't have to prove it. Because we believe in a God, Jesus, who is for us and for our salvation. And when you grasp onto that, that other stuff is just going to fall away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God. You're fully man and fully God, that you are God for us and that you are God for our salvation. Make this, Lord, not only a future reality, but a present one in our lives, that we would know your grace and your mercy that transcends all boundaries and is more powerful than anything we have ever done or will do. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.